Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of February 4th, 2021. We are here at the end of Sundance and we're going to talk about all things Sundance with our very own Oakley Anderson Moore. Good morning, everybody. And we're going to be talking about all sorts of other stuff with our editor-in-chief, George Edelman. Hello. Including the controversy around who enforces rules on set, specifically COVID rules, a new app to make downloading your footage on set easier and safer, and another controversy. we got a double controversy episode around plagiarism and media. All that this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our first story this week, the first thing we are talking about, Sundance today is the award ceremony day for Sundance. Sundance is wrapping up for another year, but there was an all-digital Sundance this year, and so uh, we wanted to talk about it with Oakley, who's been following the whole Sundance beat, some of the big news out of it, and I wanted to make sure, as much as I'm impressed with Sund- what Sundance has done, I also want to make sure we talk about another festival in Sweden that I think has maybe had an even more interesting take on the COVID safe festival. I I was very impressed. However, we're going to cover that second. Let's talk Sundance first. Oakley. Yes. So I've been lucky enough this year again to cover Sundance for No Film School. And this year, yes, it's been a completely all virtual experience, which uh, let's face it's been kind of fun because the normal Sundance experience is running around in the cold trying to get into a bunch of parties that you're not on the list for and, um, you know, finding a moment to get a, you know, eat a cliff bar on the shuttle bus. And this year you could do that all. um, You could skip that part of it and just focus on the movies. Did you wait outside in the cold somewhere to to feel solidarity (laughs) with yourself? Did you find like a place to stand outside in a puddle of water? Oh, yeah. I mean, we just got three feet of snow. So, you know, before the movie started, I went and stood on my porch for five minutes. And then I was like, <laughs> this is just like Sundance. You know, then I went in and there, there's so this year they have virtual lobby, which is basically just a chat box that opens when you start playing the film on time. And people are like chatting, which I was excited because I got to chat with people. Do people chat during the movie. Well, no, it's just before the movie starts. I think okay. I, I never actually looked during the middle of the movie, but it's supposed to be like virtual lobby and it's just chat box. And it's like, how's everybody doing? What's everyone eating right now? What did you think of that other movie? And for me, that was exciting because normally I never have any friends at Sundance to talk to <laughs> because I'm such a loner. So I just sit in the movie theater by myself. And this time I got to chat with strangers about what kind of popcorn I was eating. That's actually really cool. Uh, that could help. We keep talking about what ways in which this will change the dynamic at festivals and et cetera. And I like that as a potential networking opportunity. Chats are much different than in person. Um, I mean, in good ways and in bad ways, but it seems like that could open up some networking for, for people who aren't actually able to attend. Exactly. And that's the big thing about Sundance this year that you know I wrote about earlier is that normally it's so expensive to get to Sundance. Most of us would can't really afford to get there and get there Airbnb and travel there and take off work. And this year... Anybody could go and then, yeah, like this networking, I think they could improve the virtual lobby and they probably will if this continues in the, in the future. But I, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. Like all of a sudden you can talk to people that you wouldn't be able to talk to. And, you know, again, like at Sundance, if I'm in the Egyptian watching a movie, you know, a lot of people there know a lot of people, but me, odds are I'm just sitting there 
listening to the people behind me talk about how they got in this party that I couldn't get into, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> which is just like, maybe that's just my experience. But, um, but yeah, this time you could talk to people and people were, you know, you could just reach out and hear what people are saying, which was cool. Even just to view like what thoughts were going out there into the ether. So that's been the interesting Sundance experience and the part they have been parties as well that have been virtual parties where you it's been really weird the new frontier had a um and I don't want to get too sidetracked on the parties because um yeah no but that's I mean that's part of the Sundance experience that we don't talk a ton about because it's so not relevant to most listeners or most of the global audience of no film school but it's absolutely relevant now. <laughs> I mean, it's in the, in the context of the of the virtual Sundance. Yeah, and and that's exactly because you could even buy, I think, the the Main Street Pass, which I think was like thirty five bucks, which I think got you into you know the New Frontier. They built the platform to host like film party, and then film party. It was kind of how other parties, so individual films still had parties to celebrate their premiere. And they were, a lot of them I was seeing was using this town gather app, but, but the official Sundance film party was built by the new frontier team. I guess it was housed under new frontier. And basically you get a little avatar, you go inside and as you get closer to people, you could, you could opt to tune into what they were talking about and talk to them kind of as if you were walking around in a room in real life. And as you get closer to people, you could suddenly hear what they were saying and then try to nudge your way in if you wanted to. So weird. Yeah. So that was so the con- weird. <laughs> so it was weird. I just basically ran away. I was like, I don't want to talk to anybody, but if you were <laughs> trying to network, if you wanted to, uh, and you could run into people you knew. I mean, I did, there were people that from the film world, you're like, Oh, there's so-and-so you know, potentially if you were trying to talk to producers or give out your business card, all the things you might want to do if you're really trying to like hustle that networking thing, you could do. And you could talk about movies and you would just walk around with your little avatar and you'd see some random people and you'd see another person just running around in a circle. And then, but you get close and all of a sudden you hear the audio and you could tap to, to, you know, opt into this chat zone or whatnot and, and actually use your audio and, and your video if you, if you wanted to, to participate. Very black mirror, as they say. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. It was kind of like from the, the gaming world, all of a sudden you were networking through this interesting interface. Above all, it's still all about the movies. And even though you didn't get to watch them in a movie theater, you got to watch probably, if you had a pass, you got to watch a lot more movies because you didn't have to waste time traveling from one venue to the other. So there was so many good movies I got to see. And that's what I've been hearing from other people like, wow. The virtual thing, for better or worse, you got to see so much more movies, so many more movies. Yeah, I mean, that part of it, I think they almost have to find a way to, I mean, it seems like a great thing to try and continue some aspect of the virtual experience for press, for just general experiencing of these movies, for bigger audiences, for the life of indie film. It seems like a really cool thing that festivals can all look into to me. Um can you tell us, we want to jump into a specific movie that's been big at Sundance, but I wanted to know if you could tell us one pick of something you've seen that you really enjoyed that you feel like the community, uh, the Sundance audience in general has also enjoyed. Like that you've gotten sort of that, that's buzzy, but you, and you actually saw it and you were like, I really liked it too. And I keep hearing people, you know, you know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. guys that like, for those who haven't been to Sundance, sometimes there's, there's a couple movies people are talking about that 
everybody seems to agree is like really cool, but it might have flown under the radar. Like it might not be the big thing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I did not see Coda, which we're going to talk about soon because it broke all these records. I did. It was on opening night. All these great films played on opening night. And the thing with the Sundance model is you couldn't just watch all of them. You had to pick the film for that window to watch, which was kind of interesting. So I saw this fantastic documentary by Nan Fu Wang about um, how COVID showed up in Wuhan. She's a Chinese dissident and made all kinds of films. Her film, In the Same Breath, was just completely gutting. So I saw that instead of Coda, which broke all these records we're going to talk about. That one was really great. But there was one other film that also played opening night that I think went under the radar because there was all these other films that you had to choose between. And it's called One for the Road. And I'm act- we're actually, we've, we've, I've, I, it was not on my radar. And I did not see it opening night. I got a chance to see it. You know, there was this thing called second screening. So if you didn't see it opening night, you had one other chance to see it. And so I was, thank goodness I, I saw it then because it was so interesting and great. And it was really what I was looking for from the Sundance experience. Because I'm always looking for some film that visually is doing something with storytelling that's interesting. Obviously, there's films that the subject matter or or the topic in the documentary or the acting's really great. But I'm always like, you know, and I think no film school people are like me. They're thinking about how are somebody, you know, what are, what's what are filmmakers doing cinematically that's pushing the medium forward? And One for the Road, it's a narrative film. Um, it's a Thai film. The director's name is Baz Poonpiria. And I just thought, wow, this the visuals of this film are really telling this story in such an interesting way. And it's sort of a road trip movie about a bartender in New York who goes back to Thailand to help his friend who's dying of cancer return all of his crap to his ex-girlfriends. And which is sounds interesting, but the visuals are great. And I was thinking about um, the visuals as I was watching it. And then I found out after the film that Wong Kar Wai was the producer of this film. And there... Uh. And, and there's something very much there in the way that Baz Poonpiria is filmmaking that kind of is in that vein, if you're a Wong Kar Wai fan, which I am a huge fan, where you have these sort of like bombastic visuals and and maybe not bombastic, but engaging visuals with this use of music that Baz was really playing with, but kind of doing in his own different way. And so one for the road in terms of visuals, I think that one was flying under the radar because it was competing with other films on opening night. And I'm so glad I saw it. And I think that um, I've been talking to a few people who have seen it, but not many people have, but the people that have are like, wow, that film was so good. I'm so glad I was able to, that's what I was looking for at Sundance. And it was in, it was in one for the road. Wow. That's cool. Good to know. And we'll definitely look out for that since you're, you're covering it for us as well. Yes, exactly. That is really awesome. And then Coda massive, like a record-breaking sale for Coda. And, you know, part of Sundance is the sales, so we should sort of dive in a little bit to what it means that we had the biggest sale that Sundance has ever had in an all-digital year, which I find fascinating. Yeah, I think it's really encouraging. I mean, I think it's great that there's that market still. I think it's nice to know that the industry, that the distributors are buying at, the biggest festival in the country and excited to spend like that. And it says a lot about the health of the indie film market. I think even if there's a lot of warning signs and there's a lot of question marks, it's reassuring to see that happen. It means that there's still a sense of value there. 
Well, it's also interesting because one thing I've been hearing a lot of lately is that while a few years ago, the streamers were all really obsessed with uh, ongoing open-ended television type shows that could just go on and on forever. The streamers are really all pivoting. Like it was an Apple purchase, right? Apple paid $25 million for Coda and Coda is a uh, child of deaf parents is the acronym. And it's about uh, a woman who grows up with deaf parents who has to sort of struggle as to whether or not to when to leave them. And there's an interesting thing happening with the streamers where they are moving to focusing more on discrete metrics and they're moving towards bigger single events, you know, and we saw that last year, like with Disney plus the two things we talk about are Mulan and Mandalorian. One is ongoing. The other is discrete. Apple is putting a lot more of its money into discrete one-offs like Greyhound and now with Coda and, you know, I mean, even Netflix, like, yes, there might be a uh, Queen's Gambit sequel, but Queen's Gambit was originally clearly intended as a one-off maxi series. So there is sort of this movement towards like the rebirth of the feature that Tarantino was talking about a couple of years ago, where even streamers, which five years ago, all the streamers wanted was something that could go on and on and on forever. Streamers are gradually getting more interested in a discrete beginning, middle and end one off because it apparently does better for their metrics and their engagement. So that's, I, I don't know, I was really encouraged that even in an all digital year, because one of the things you think about with Sundance prices is there's like a hot house atmosphere. I've never been in these suites, but you hear all these stories about like, oh, that deal was done in that suite and there was four different companies bidding and they were all going in and out and it was going till five in the morning and then they paid 17 million for whatever. And like sometimes people even think at Sundance people overpay and it's like, Nobody was in a suite arguing with each other about Coda. You know, I, the Apple team was probably in Cupertino. Whoever they were bidding against was probably in, you know, if Amazon was one of them, they were probably up in Seattle. They probably, no one traveled for it. They were arguing over email and text, I guess. Maybe they were in that virtual video game thing that Oakley was talking about and they yeah. overheard each other and there was like a bidding. <laughs> that's, that's probably what happened. What's also cool about this project it doesn't have like a big name. You know, last year, Palm Springs was the big sale. And it's almost a little sad that $17 million and 69 cents is no longer a number we have to keep talking <laughs> about. But maybe, we, maybe we'll all find a way to keep bringing it up. But Coda was $25 million, topping it. And I think that one of the things I like about it is even though Palm Springs is really cool, good movie, we, we spoke to the writer-director team on this podcast. I interviewed them if you want to check that out. But Andy Samberg, you know, like a name that's recognized around the country. And a lot of times the big sales have that um, out of Sundance. This is cool because even though there's some, you know, these aren't total, these people behind Coda aren't the, the actors, the, the director, they're not out of the blue entirely. It's not name driven and it's coming of age and it just feels a little bit more like wow they really think it's good do you know what i mean like it's nice that there's like a big sale that's like we just think this is great we think it's going to do really well i like that it's original it's not ip it doesn't have a big name in it it's an interesting topic that's encouraging to me it's cool for the you know for the deaf community to have a film i feel like maybe those are like you know instead of like oh well uh people who like Andy Samberg are going to watch this. They're like, well, look at all these people in the deaf community who grew up with or a child of, of deaf adults, like all these people out there who haven't had a film for them, you know, not that this is just a film for them, but I'm sure it's pretty exciting. And, and I'm sure that factors in somewhat in the age of streaming and knowing algorithms and metrics about an additional added audience that's going to see the film. 
I'm sure that factors a little bit into it. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's also just, it is a more traditional hitting on what you said. It's a more traditional Sundance story of like not big stars, you know, like the producers on Palm Springs were a lot of the Lonely Island guys who, you know, 15 years ago were able to make Hot Rod and like, you know, uh, have been continuing to make a lot of interesting movies. Just because they're established producers doesn't mean that that doesn't deserve a Sundance win and a Sundance sale and all that. But like, it also know, doesn't mean people are going to watch the movie. <laughs> That's the other crazy yeah. thing about the market now. Like, it's not even a guarantee of success. So, but but continue. Well, no one watched Hot Rod anyway. Um, but the uh, <laughs> sorry, I mean, that's guys. true. I think that I think they would make that joke. Uh, I I hope they would make that joke. But so it's it is Coda is much more of a like success story of a less you know the Lonely Island guys whether or not they sold at Sundance we're going to be able to keep making stuff. The Coda team seems a little bit more like a little bit more of that traditional Sundance breakout thing. And that's really heartening. Now I'm going to wrap up our Sundance coverage with this. Now that we no longer have $17, $17 million and 69 cents, I want to point out that the next thing we want is four twenty sixty nine. So if we could get the <laughs> $42 million and 69 cents sale, the internet would be so happy. Um, that's a lot of money. So, so I'm going to write a script called four twenty sixty nine. <laughs> if somebody wants to finance my script for 2069, our goal that we're going to manifest with the secret is selling for $42 million and 69 cents because for 2069, the internet will be so happy. All right. <laughs> moving on to our next story of something the internet is not happy with Buzzfeed news. And I can't believe I have to keep saying this, but I'm going to keep saying it. There is Buzzfeed, which is like listicles and garbage. And then there's Buzzfeed news, which is actually a legitimate news source. And people still don't seem to have accepted this, but like BuzzFeed News is like a legitimate news organization that breaks interesting stories, did a story that I'm frankly shocked no one else had already done, where they interviewed a bunch of like COVID compliance officers and PAs on current Hollywood productions about who is enforcing all of these COVID rules. And like, you know, anecdotally, I've talked to a lot of people back on set. It is a really good article with a deep dive into like, hey, wait a minute, guys, we're making PAs and PA level employees enforce rules. And that's fucked. It's, <laughs> it's like it, it's a completely inappropriate like place to put rule enforcement because they're the least powerful people on set. And yet they're expected to go up to mega celebrities, millionaire producers and enforce rules. And even though it is a pandemic and we hope that most people just forget about standing too close to someone. And when someone reminds them, we'll take a couple steps back. There's going to be people who are like, no, fuck off. And um, yeah, I was really, it was a great reminder that BuzzFeed gave us of like, these are not the people we need to actually empower people who have structural power on film sets to be the people enforcing the rules. And it's unfair to ask PAs who've maybe gone through like one COVID safety training we reblogged the story on No Film School so you can read our coverage of it and the link to the BuzzFeed story, the original content. But our Jason Hellerman used a quote that I think also is pretty revealing. Warner Brothers employees spends their days managing safety on set, nights and weekends answering emails and phone calls from concerned crew members, said they do work with a couple of production assistants specifically dedicated to handling COVID safety, as well as a registered nurse. But despite taking several online training courses, they're not medical professional and feel ill-equipped to handle every possible scenario. 
I just think that's the that's the core thing here is a few online courses. <laughs> like that's the extent of the training. On top of like, you know, you're taking the people who have a lot on their plate already. So they're already overworked. They're already underpaid. And they're not, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but it's true. They're not respected on set. They have vi- they have zero authority. And you're handing them what is one of arguably the most important issues happening on a set right now? I think it's just a gross oversight and another example of where the whole assistant dynamic in Hollywood is abused, mismanaged, and a disaster. <laughs> That's my opinion. And I just don't think, I, I think we talk a lot and have talked a lot about how the whole assistant culture is messed up. This is just another notch in that belt, really. Yeah, I mean, I feel I feel for them and it's this is this must be just like a failure of leadership because that's exactly how film sets are run on a strict hierarchy and it and NPAs are not very high up there and if these assistants are going online and then being asked as Charles said to go and tell somebody on that upper tier of the hierarchy, you know, like everyone knows what's going to happen. So, I don't even understand you know, is it's just like willful leadership saying, yeah, it's fine. Just It just says to me, like, the people in charge don't care about COVID because if all they're doing is asking assistance to enforce it, then like somehow they don't care, which I don't understand how that, how they could think that way. But I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, here's this, this is anecdotal and I'm not going to cite any sources on it. But what I know through the world that I know here is that most of the cases on set are not above the line. And that's pretty much because the sets and the productions value talent and their being able to show up every day and not getting COVID more than they do, you know, people who are, as in their view, more interchangeable, which isn't shocking, but it's just reality. But it also I mean, is makes- We can get ourselves back to a place where we're shocked by it. Yeah, we, can, <laughs> we like- should. You're right. We should be shocked by it. It is, it is unacceptable. But it is also like, you know, it's probably true and it's why it's the way that we are handling things with, quote unquote, the essential workers. It's like you'll drive around a neighborhood, an expensive, rich neighborhood in Los Angeles and see signs on people's lawns like thanking essential workers. It's like, what you know, that's not going to really help much. Sorry. Like, and I think that that's, it's the same thing. It's like we had, uh, and we covered on the podcast, we covered on nofilmschool.com, Tom Cruise ranting about someone screwing up. Remember, this was a big thing, and and Tom Cruise was sort of hailed as a quasi hero for for caring and for saying how hard he's working to to show the world and Hollywood that that we're open. And Charles pointed out it seemed very performative. And regardless, it's like, you know, if I was a PA and I saw even a grip and an electric standing there too close without their masks on, I don't think I would walk up to them and say, "Hey, guys, you're not following the rules," because it would be uncomfortable and I'm not paid enough to put myself in that position. And I don't want to get abused because so much of the culture around the industry is abuse that I would just be like, I, you know, this is not, it's not my place. Like, even though my maybe superior told me like, Hey, make sure nobody's, can you just imagine as a PA being told by the production manager or maybe even like a middle producer level, 
hey, your job, just make sure everyone's following this list of watch these videos about COVID (laughs) and and make sure nobody's close together. And when they're having their cigarette break, like don't let if they're not wearing their mask, it's like, I'm not going to do that. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm not going to walk up to forget Tom Cruise. Like, I'm not going to walk up to anybody on set and be like, hey, uh, I mean, I'm a green PA and I'm here to tell you what you're doing is wrong and unsafe. You just get well, it's also, the problem is PAs and many people I know who are starting as COVID officers now are all people who want to move up in the industry. They're all incentivized to be like, oh, this producer could someday hire me on future projects and they could keep me working. And, and when you're in that like highly freelance day player economy, it's a very difficult thing to go up to, you know, um, a g and team or the Teamsters or whoever who outranks you on the call sheet, they're higher up on it and be like, Hey guys, can we, you know, like there's a friendly way to do it. And then if there's any pushback, you're sort of out of luck. I think what really needs to come out of this Buzzfeed article, I mean, I did a shoot two weeks ago for a university and there was no doubt in my mind that at the top level, there was a serious commitment to COVID safety. And we didn't have a COVID rep on set because it was like, you know, four performers and like three crew people and whatever. But like the level of testing and uh, attestations and everything we had to do ahead of time. And it was very clear that like people who were tied to the insurance, who were tied to the budget, were taking it seriously. And you kind of need someone on any set more than the seven people we had in that room. And it was like a 6,000 square foot room. You need people who are really like... You need a producer level person being the one in charge of COVID safety who is, you know, not employed by the production, but employed by the studio or the client or something where they are safe and separate from the production who is actually able to enforce that stuff. And that's the complicated position Cruz was in is he felt like he had to enforce it because he is a producer on that project. And that's the thing is it needs to be top down. Rules that are enforced bottom up are very... uh complicated. We did a story back in December of 2020 called Explore Hollywood's Newest On-Set Job, The COVID Officer. And uh, one of our writers, Jasmine Bell, sat down with the COVID officer or compliance officer, interviewed them about what their day on set is like, what the job is like. And the interesting part is it was somebody who had been a PA, who had been helping on set helping the COVID compliance officer on another set and then took the online course and then did it on another set. So it was sort of, there is a, that that seems like the general direction, but if you want to read more about what they're doing all day on set, you can definitely check out that post. Yeah. I just think that it's everything about handling this, it this way reeks of irresponsibility. It's shocking to hear that anecdotally you've been hearing about how people getting COVID on set are, you know, more in the essential line or below the line. And I was just thinking that one thing that always has frustrated me and kind of grossed me out about studio sets or TV sets is how much the hierarchy is kind of class-based. There's such a difference from class from the top of the hierarchy to the people at the bottom who would be background actors and catering, I guess. And that always kind of grossed me out and was one thing that I always appreciated about the, the promise of independent film was that you could make films that weren't being made in this sort of like class-based system. And so I think that's something that we should look into as an existing problem. But now if we're seeing that that this lax COVID rules are because people at the top don't care, and it's more about, you know, lower class people, essential workers on these sets that are putting themselves in more risk than 
than the rest. Like, I just think that that's something that we should look into more. Yeah, I agree. I spoke to a, I think docs can sometimes be different. I interviewed Kirsten Johnson, who did a doc called Dick Johnson is Dead last year. And one of the things that really struck me was she talked about how she goes out of her way to get to personally know everyone on her crew. And I said, oh, so you're like, you're humanizing everybody. And she was like, well, they are humans. Yeah. I mean, I, I know. And I, and it's so weird because it's like, it really is like there are multiple worlds and tiers of existence on, on a big set and on sets in general. And it's a credit. It shouldn't be, but it is a credit to the people who go out of their way to try to balance that out and humanize everybody. Um, because so often that was the other thing, again, going back to that Tom Cruise thing that, that made me uncomfortable with it. It's like, I just don't like that way of speaking to the people who you work with, especially if they work below you. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to wrap this up with yet another Brendan Fraser story because, <laughs> uh, of course, <laughs> you know, one of my first jobs in Hollywood, I was doing the lighting for a live reading where like celebrities read short stories and all the celebrities I met there were very nice. No one was a dick, but like head and shoulders above everybody else was Brendan Fraser. And it was like a live reading thing where, you know, uh, people would pay to, eat a meal. It was like a dinner theater kind of thing. It was actually pretty cool. And like Brendan Fraser is the nicest man on earth. And halfway through his story, a plane flew overhead and he just naturally knew to pause because they, they record the sound for radio and he just naturally knew to pause. He was like, oh, that sound, I'm not even going to have the sound guy say anything. And then the pause was long enough. He started like making faces to keep the audience entertained. He looked over at the sound guy. He gave like a finger gun and then the plane <laughs> left and he just picked right up perfectly one line back. And it was like, oh, you're a human being. You are like a decent person who recognizes that the sound person also has a job and is going to have to edit this. And you are going to make that easier for them. You are a gentleman. And it was like, it was amazing. I still think about that 20 years in uh, entertainment later or 21. God, I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that is the exception, not the rule. All right, moving on from COVID to the cold, hard world of tech. So we covered this week a new app that I didn't know about, but everybody should know about called Levy. So before we get to why Levy is so great, let's talk a little bit about downloading your footage. So when you're on set, you shoot something, you're shooting to an SD card or a red mini mag or whatever you're shooting to, you need to download it to a hard drive. And when you do that, you can just use the finder to copy. But what a lot of people don't know is that not every Finder, or if you're on a PC, Windows Explorer, copy is perfect, right? We think it's really perfect, but sometimes little bits get corrupted along the way. And you might not notice until like three or four copies later. So you download the footage to your hard drive on set, and then you go back home and you download it to your home hard drive, and you start editing, and you have a corrupt shot. Sometimes that corruption came from when you downloaded. So what we do on film sets is we do something called a checksum verified copy. It's a little complicated, but... The simplest way to understand it is it's a copy that checks itself, hence checksum, and it makes a record of that checking in a, in a form called a hash that lets you, every time you make a copy later, check it again against the original. It's a really neat system that computer scientists figured out. It's super useful. If you are shooting and not doing checksum verified copies, you should start doing checksum verified copies. You will have a more robust workflow if you do it. Now, 
in order to do this before, Resolve does it for free, but it's not actually great. You don't get reporting, which is what you really need out of it. So you can do it in Resolve for free, but Resolve is really a color grading tool and it's a great one. It's not really a download tool. You don't get reports and that's a bummer. You want reports. So most people use really fancy software like Silverstack, which is $1,000 a year, or ShotPut, which is $200, or uh, even Hedge, which is 80 bucks. All of these are great tools that are wonderful. I, I, they all have certain benefits, but Levy is super cool because it's five bucks for life for checksum verified copies. And I think that is a price point that students and people just getting in the industry and people who only shoot once a year should go check out the Levy app, L-E-V-E-E, Levy, like drove my Chevy to the Levy, but the Levy was dry. And <laughs> when you start doing your downloads, you can use Levy. Now, as a $5 app, it has limitations. It's not going to give you, you know, like if you're working on a feature film and you're doing downloads every day, you're going to want like a big complicated report that has like what I downloaded each day organized in this beautiful fashion. That's when you're going to want to go to ShotPut or Silverstack which are great programs. Like if you're working professionally as a DIT, Levy's not for you. But if you're like, you know, a one mule team shooter or out doing a dock on your own and and you don't need those big elaborate reports, Levy's pretty killer. It has, um, it does do reporting. It just doesn't do like the big complicated robust reporting. It also integrates with notifications. So you can make it so that if you combine it with a tool like if the this, then that, IFTTT, you can make it so that like when your download is done, you get an email and a note on your phone and stuff like that. So you can like set the download and then like go make dinner or go play with your kid. And then when the download's done, you get a little ping on your phone. So you got all sorts of nice stuff like that. I was really impressed with everything Levy packed in for $4.99 and I wanted everybody to know about it. Are there various pricing tiers or is it a one tier everything? $4.99 for life. That is the deal. That's their, that's their pitch. It's, and it's, pretty slick for its price point. I, I think the smart thing they're doing is they're accepting that they're not going to get the pros and they're going to go after as many filmmakers and other people who need to worry about data integrity as they can. And I think that's really smart. I mean, if there's one thing that surprises me, it's how many people I know who are out shooting stuff who just use Finder to download their footage. And I think they're like, wait a minute, there's probably 100,000 people who do that that we could target Whereas I think Silverstack and ShotPut are both building tools where there's like, there's probably 10 or 20,000 customers. So we'll have to charge a little more, but because there's, we'll give them more features. I think that's the, the take for Levy. Interesting. So they're finding that middle market. Yeah, I think so. So cool. yeah, Levy. All right. And then our last story this week is not a true Ask No Film School in that no one actually emailed to ask us about it. But it has come up like people have asked me about it in life. And so I'm going to pretend that they asked me to talk about it on the podcast, which is the drama surrounding the plagiarizing of the work of cartoonist Adam Ellis by short film Keratin. So if you haven't been on the internet this week, you might have missed this story. This has been you know, all up in the internet this week in all sorts of places. There's a cartoonist, Adam Ellis, who does cartooning. Many of his cartoons are on BuzzFeed. And, uh, you know, you've probably seen some of his cartoons and memes. He has a very distinct drawing style that is, you know, like hipster light. I'm going to call it hipster light. Um, but, you know, he makes some good cartoons. People enjoy his work. And then a short film named Keratin uh, was recently made 
that is basically a shot for shot remake of one of his cartoons and did not credit him or ask permission and started winning awards and festivals. And then like they gave an interview in which they acknowledged that they were inspired by a web comic, but didn't even mention his name or the comic in question. And then had the gall to ask him, Hey, we're getting into some festivals. Could you like promote our short? We know you have like a million followers. And he was like, I won't promote your short. I consider this plagiarizing, take it down. And it has been sort of a big drama. It's a particularly fascinating drama since in 2012, Shia LaBeouf did the same thing with a Dan Close comic where he, he made a short film version of a Dan Close comic that like appeared in festivals and won some awards before people were like, wait a minute, you just adapted without permission or credit a Dan Close comic. What is your problem? You're Shia LaBeouf, notorious you know, feral. He has a lot of problems. He... <laughs> I mean, but, yes. I... <laughs> but onto this one, it's really interesting because it begs, there's a whole lot of issues that I thought were worth discussing. Uh, and the thing that keeps coming up are, is it worth it for Adam Ellis to get a lawyer? And is this plagiarizing when it moves from one medium to another? For me, the answer is it's not worth it for him to get a lawyer. I think he knows that. I think he sort of indicated lawyers keep reaching out to him and he keeps passing because there's not money to chase. Like nobody really wins awards at film festivals. Even if you win Best Short at Sundance, I don't think there's a big cash grant. It's just you won Best Short at Sundance. There are festivals that have some prizes, but, you know, the big prize is the the help to your career. So, you know, what would he sue over necessarily? Like the, the filmmakers have already taken the film down and deleted all their social media and are sort of in hiding at the moment. So I don't think there is any point in pursuing legal action because legal action really is usually focused on like money in terms of profits and activity. If they then had, if they'd managed to get to the point where they'd sold the short film to Amazon and made a million dollars somehow, which unlikely, but who knows, then I think there'd be a reason to get a lawyer and sue. I think in this case, getting them to cease and desist is enough. They would have had a much different case if they'd made a feature out of his short that, you know, was financed and had release. But then the other thing is sort of what is the boundary of plagiarizing, you know, because certainly there are there is inspired by, uh, you know, Apocalypse Now is inspired by Heart of Darkness, um, although I, I'm pretty sure they actually paid for the option on Heart of Darkness. But it might, uh, it, some, sometimes something that of that age could also become public domain. I mean, you have, I, I know that's not in that instance, but sometimes inspired by if you go back far enough. You know. Well, you guys all know that just this year, Great Gatsby entered public domain. Indeed. And actually we cover regularly on No Film School, we cover what is updated to public domain. So the things you can use to inspire your new takes, uh, your modern spins or whatever you got for Gatsby. Gatsby on another planet. I don't know. Space you Gatsby. You guys could all go out right now and you you don't even have to make it Space Gatsby. You could literally <laughs> you just, just make it Gatsby. <laughs> make Gatsby. Now, I don't know where if you if I don't know where you're going to find like the uh 1920s era mega mansions, but if you happen to have two mega mansions across a bay from each other that you can get access to for free, you can cast your friends and just shoot Gatsby and no one can stop you. Yeah, I mean, you can do that with Hamlet. 
you know, there's a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of content out there that, but that's why we always update what's in the public domain. That's why I think Robin Hood is like one of the things that gets pitched the most and remade the most because it's public domain. Um, yeah. I I would say on the um, topic of plagiarism, I don't know the letter of the law, but everybody agrees that this is not cool and not okay. <laughs> and I think that that sort of is like, like Charles said, you you can't get any money out of them because they didn't make any money out of it. So there's no legal action worth taking because legal action is going to cost you uh, beyond the cease and desist thing. But they won in the court of public opinion in the world of the internet. And sometimes we all complain about things like Twitter, but this is what's kind of useful sometimes about things like Twitter, which is that I saw, I think Patton Oswalt tweeted about it. He's got a big following we certainly tweeted about it no film school the general consensus to every single person who comments on it says it is like this is awful this is screwed up this is this is plagiarism this is stealing and it's tough for the filmmakers not that i want i'm taking their side on any level but like this is what they've they've reaped what they sowed and the risk of doing something like this is that it comes back around and whatever notoriety you might have created out of making that thing is now overshadowed by a really bad story and a really bad look. So don't do it. Like it's not the payoff of it is not worth it. Like if they had gotten away with it, so to speak. I mean, so they had a short that got some attention. Like it's not like they, you, you know, it's not worth it. It was not worth it. I don't and understand never... why why they didn't at least just credit the cartoonists or say inspired by or somehow it's very confusing that they wouldn't somehow acknowledge him when it's like a shot for shot remake of his comic because like I mean I come more from the documentary world where permission you know that's the word permission is almost like, dude, you don't need permission if you're doing something like you don't need permission from the Chinese government to show how many graveyards there were at the outbreak of COVID, for example, like in Nanfu Wang's film. Like that's like sort of a important part of some kind of storytelling is when you're, you can't get permission, but it's important to you. But this is clearly like, this is totally not that. So like even with the word permission, I'm like, oh, well, you don't always need it. But this doesn't make any sense because they're literally just like, why wouldn't, if they didn't want to get permission, why wouldn't they just at least mention Ellis. Like, I don't understand what they're thinking was. Yeah, it's a it's a very good question. I think there's a very real possibility that they're not no film school readers or listeners and that they <laughs> legit... No, no, I mean, like, I'm partially kidding, but I'm partially like, if they're new at this, I like, intellectual property is one of those things you learn. Like, I think yeah. it is entirely possible. I think they really revealed that it wasn't a malicious mistake when they asked yeah. him to promote their short film. I think they literally yeah. no, but like you know, it's what I mean? true though. Like, you'd never do that if you thought you were doing something wrong. Yeah, if it's like if I just stole money from someone, <laughs> just too dumb. I would never call that person and be like, "Yo, can you help me with like the money I just you know?" If I like if I stole if I stole like yeah. let's say I stole a gun from someone and I couldn't figure out how to get the safety off, I wouldn't call that person and be like, "Yo, can you show me how to get your safety off?" Like yeah. I would hide because I stole the gun from them. And presumably if I stole one, they had more. So this is like, I think this is, I, I think that there is at least one possibility in this universe where these two filmmakers are very young and legitimately might not have known any better. 
which I do like it. Like, look, you made a horrible mistake. The the internet loves to shame people who've made horrible mistakes. Uh, if I think there is a scenario where if they came out of it and they were like, look, we made a horrible mistake and we legitimately did not know any better. And now we understand this much better. This film will never be shown again. I hope that there would be an opportunity where that wouldn't mean if they made another short film, it didn't get in anywhere. Because I do think like this doesn't seem like the kind of mistake that you should never recover from if it was made out of total ignorance. If it was made out of ignorance. I, I totally agree. And I would also just, I want to add to that. I was going to say before you made that really good point that I don't want to sound like I'm defending lifting something like that. But people treat a lot of content these days like it's recyclable or liftable. We even often feature Quentin Tarantino on our site and his quote of saying like great artists steal. Now that context is completely different. But in this world where almost everything is referenced, homaged, retreaded, rebooted, requeled, and they might have, I'm not saying this is what happened, but I'm saying it's certainly also a possibility. They might have seen this thing, loved it, and been like, yo, we should make a short of that thing. And not even thought about it being like it's 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 stealing the property. It's just like it's a different medium, like you're saying, Charles. Or they might have forgotten that they saw it and just done it because they loved it. I don't know. I don't know what the process was, and I don't think they've said. But well, no, they do credit a web comic, and that that is actually the most damning thing. The way in which they in the interview when they're like, "We saw this web comic," and it's like the fact that this has happened twice with comics is a problem because it's like. Well, why do movie people feel like that they, they don't have to credit comics? Like comics are also a legitimate art form. Yeah, I'm just I'm just reading their their interview now and when asked about it on director's notes, they said the original concept was inspired by a short online cartoon which we saw which we developed further, drawing on our love for disturbing yeah. stories and imagery. But they didn't say what the, comic. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, Oh, a short online cartoon, don't worry about it. <laughs> that makes it very cut and dried. But I would still say I yeah. You say they made a horrible mistake. And I feel like there are a lot of horrible mistakes you can make in the world. This is not high on the list because no one was truly harmed. You know, there's a lot of abuse that happens in the in filmmaking and movie sets and all kinds of things. This is something that's not okay. I'm glad they were identified. I'm glad it was pulled. I'm glad every but I also think it would be a little absurd for it to be like a you'll never work in this town again thing because really like there's so many bad things like there's so many ways people cut corners and take advantage of others and sidestep and we've talked about some of them even on this very podcast that I just think as far as this goes it's like yeah you can't do that don't do it again and you know lesson learned like moving on uh, i'm not willing to go that far i'm willing to say it might have been an innocent mistake Everything is up to now how they handle it. If they come out with a full and clean apology and they like really acknowledge what they did and how it worked, then yeah, it's possible it was a real mistake. The fact that they, even in that interview, say, we saw this online webcomic, which like even sounds dismissive when they say it. Like At this point, using the terms online and web are meaningless. Like Every comic is on the web. Every TV show is on the web. So when you refer to something as like an online or a web thing, there is like a hidden slight there to me where it's like implying, well, it's not in print. It's not like a Garfield from 1988 in a newspaper. It's just this online thing. Um, and I think that there's that. 
and there's the and we developed it further when clearly like the shot to shot comparison shows that the only way they developed it further was setting it in a dark forest but it's like a shot for shot remake of the comic I think that there's like a little bit of like lying there and that lying implies sure. that they knew they were guilty. And if they knew they were guilty and they were doing it anyway, that's also a problem. I also think the other thing is we really need to, we need to do a better job of making sure that like, you know, looking at the shot for shot, they've learned a little bit about cinematography. They they've learned a little bit about filmmaking. So we have to make sure that everybody's like getting into this and learning about it also understands like, concepts of like original ideas and what's copyable and what's like what does it mean to actually develop it further because if they took this idea and they truly developed it further they could have easily made it a whole fresh new thing right like many many people take you know like uh one of my favorite movies uh heart eight the first bt anderson movie is very similar to bob la flambeur a great jean pierre melville movie it's clearly inspired by bob la flambeur like there is a connection there but he's P.T. Anderson. He took, you know, uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs is clearly inspired by a Hong Kong movie. Like, you can take it and then you in- develop it and develop it and develop it and develop it to the point where it's not even, you can't, like, the connections are so loose you can't even see how it was connected. And, you know, anybody who's ever worked on a screenplay knows how much it evolves, even from its original idea, if it was original idea over the course of several drafts. So the fact that it's just like this shot for shot thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. As I say that everybody does this, they lift and they homage. It's important to do it in such a way that obscures the original so it's your own new spin. But I do also have some compassion for somebody who, I mean, they really didn't change it at all. They obviously stole it. But in this world of of doing that, I think that it's it's important to be aware that you have to be careful when you do it because everybody's doing it all the time. I just hope they're 19-year-old idiots. If they turn out to be like 35-year-old smart people, like <laughs> it's going to be harder. But if they're just a couple of kids who made a stupid mistake, if they own it, it should be forgivable if they own it. But they better own it. They better come out soon with like a statement of like a, an actual apology that follows that meme guide of how to actually apologize and, you know, doesn't use the word if anywhere. Like if anyone thought we plagiarized, we apologize. Then you're over <laughs> Then the internet will totally never let you work again. And the internet never forgets. That's not true. The internet forgets all the time. I'd like to see them. Their second film should probably be like a deep meditation on being publicly shamed. And what does plagiarism mean? (laughs) I might forgive them if they do a good job on that. All righty. So that has been the No Film School podcast for the week of February 4th. You can check me out on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. Although I'm not very active on Twitter anymore now that we have a new president who doesn't make me as irrationally angry and certainly in the last couple of weeks hasn't really filled me with that much irrational anger although a little bit here or there because you know nobody's perfect and yeah i've been oakley anderson moore you can check out a bunch of cool sundance coverage with super interesting filmmakers and what they've been doing um, coming up on no film school all week long and you can follow me i guess on instagram at oakley louise and i'm george edelman editor-in-chief at no film school thanks for listening be sure to rate the podcast on iTunes really helps more people see it. And if you don't rate it well, leave a comment and let us know why, because we'd love to know what you don't like about what we're doing. And of course, follow us on Facebook and Twitter and check us out on nofilmschool.com. All that Sundance content that Oakley is talking about is going up all week. Thanks so much. And if any of you find the webcomic that inspired this podcast that we plagiarized for this entire episode, <laughs> keep it to yourself. <laughs> <laughs>